We continue today in our series on the five women in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1. Today, the third of the series on Ruth, a book that would take about 15 minutes to read. I thought about reading all of it, but we will read just the beginning of it and then go to Matthew 1. And in the sermon, I want to give you the story of Ruth in fullness, in a timely way. Hear now the word of God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And now Matthew 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. Amen. So far, the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us today by his Holy Spirit. The book of Ruth is one of the loveliest and true stories ever written. It's about God's kindness and love, faithfulness and redemption. It answers a question not only true for Naomi and Ruth, but for us today. Does God really care? Does he care about you and the trials you're facing? Has God done something about the curse of sin? Will God provide a Savior? We see this today as we come to the third of the five women in Jesus' genealogy. And what we're going to do is go through each chapter in a summary way. So first, let's look at chapter 1 together. The book of Ruth takes place in the days of the judges. This is about 800 years after Judah, where we were in Genesis 38 two Sundays ago. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, which has a very contemporary sound to it, doesn't it? It's a period of over 300 years of apostasy, spiritual, social, and political unrest. And in this time, there was a famine in Bethlehem. As the Mosaic Covenant said, there were conditions to the covenant, 
And because of the disobedience of the people, these curses were coming down. Bethlehem is the house of bread. That's what the word means. We sang about it just a few minutes ago. It's in Judah, who's in the line of Christ. It's the city of David, where the Christ will be born. There's a lot of significance here to this little town, at this point, of not more than a few hundred people. And in Ruth, this is where Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons live. But when the famine comes, they don't repent. They flee. Elimelech's name means, my God is king. But he lives according to his own rules, doing what's right in his own eyes. There's a theme here. Along with physical hunger, there's a spiritual famine and hunger going on in Bethlehem. They go to Moab. This is not like us just moving from one town to another. God's people were to be in the promised land. Moab is east of the promised land. The Moabites came from the drunken incest of Lot and his daughter, Genesis 19. They worshipped false gods. One of their kings was Eglon. Kids, you love this story. The left-handed assassin, Ehud, he took out Eglon. Eglon was in Moab. The prophets prophesy against them. And yet God has his people in Moab. But at this time, it's a personal nightmare for Naomi. Ten years in Moab, her husband dies. Her sons marry unbelieving, outside-of-the-covenant spouses. She has no grandchildren. Ten years, no kids. It echoes Sarah and Abraham and her barrenness and Sarah's plan then to send Hagar to Abraham. And then both her sons die. Naomi is widowed and childless. And at this point, in the frowning providence of God, she decides to go home. But the question is, what about her two daughters-in-law? She says to Orpah, go back to your gods. Naomi is a postmodern ancient. Do what's right for you. Don't come with me. Orpah leaves. But Ruth clung to her mother-in-law. Covenant commitments. Naomi tries again. Ruth, go back. Join Naomi. Ruth here doesn't listen to Naomi, who's giving the anti-great commission. She doesn't want the gospel to go to the nations. But Ruth says in a crescendo of commitment in Ruth 1, do not urge me to leave you or to stop following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Loved ones, that is a statement of the faithfulness of God. That's the refrain of the covenant of grace. I will be your God. You will be my people. And Ruth is converted. Much like Rahab. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Ruth turns from idolatry to the living God. She's a believing pilgrim like you and I and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. She's a part of the covenant family of God, the church in the Old Testament. The church is growing. The covenant of grace, the promises God made to Abraham are being fulfilled. The nations are coming to worship the Lord. And that's what true faith means then 
and now. True faith means like Rahab and Ruth and Bill and Luann and Heidi today, we join with God's people. Yeah, the church is messy. The church is flawed. We're weak. We need Christ. But if God is our God, then his people are our people as well. How does Naomi respond? Ruth is converted. She says nothing. They go back to Bethlehem, perhaps 40 to 70 miles. They get there and the people say, is this Naomi? The years of pain have perhaps changed her physically. And who is she with? A Moabitess named Ruth? Do you notice that Naomi doesn't talk about Ruth? She doesn't talk about what God has done here. She says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. God has made my life bitter. Mara comes from that place in Exodus, in the wilderness, when the people of God grumbled against the Lord because they couldn't drink the water. But Naomi forgets that God provides water for them at the next stop. That God can turn bitterness into joyfulness. She's so turned in, though, on her own circumstances, she doesn't see that there's hope at the end of the chapter. That the barley harvest is taking place. That the famine is over physically. That there's been a spiritual repentance in Bethlehem. Naomi's got it all wrong. She thought she went away full. And she's coming back empty, but no. She went away spiritually empty. And at this point, she still is. But God's not done with her. The night of adversity and mourning will turn to rejoicing. Secondly, the abundant kindness of God. Naomi and Ruth are going to live in Bethlehem, but how are they going to survive? A widow, an older widow, and a younger widow. Ruth is industrious. I'll go to the fields, I'll glean. Meaning, according to the law of Moses, the farmers left the edges of their field unharvested so the poor could get food. Ruth takes initiative and risk in doing this. She loves her mother-in-law. She says that in the book. She serves her mother-in-law. She has compassion on her mother-in-law. And she goes out, and it happens to be, don't you love that, chapter 2, verse 3, that she ends up in the field of a man named Boaz. Is that luck? Coincidence? The invisible hand of the providence of God. Boaz is a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech, Ruth 2, verse 4. He's a worthy man. And the first words he speaks show that. The Lord be with you. May God's presence and favor fill your souls. He says that to his workers. He says that to people because that's who he is. A man who trusts and fears the Lord. And then verse 5. Don't you wish you could have a recording of verse 5 of chapter 2? What's the tone? What's the accent? 
whose young woman is this? He shows compassion to Ruth. He provides a place in his field for her to glean. He provides water for her. It's hot. They need water. He protects her because it's a dangerous place for women in the fields of the days of the judges in Bethlehem. A place where in the history of Israel, Judges 17 and others, there had been horrible sins, worse sins than the nations even. He protects her. Ruth says, chapter 2, verse 10, Why have I found favor in your sight? Why should you take notice of me? And Boaz says, Ruth, I've heard of your commitment to Naomi and to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I know that you have come to take refuge under the Lord's wings. A picture of trust in the Lord and his care for us. We don't know what Ruth looks like. It's the loyalty and kindness of Ruth that attracts Boaz to her. Even before he saw her or met her. Isn't that remarkable? And then Boaz invites her to a meal. Bread and wine and roasted grain. It's like fondue. They're dipping it. We're wondering, is there a romance here? Is something about to happen between these two? Boaz shows such compassion to Naomi and Ruth. He reaches out across normal boundaries to show care to someone who is in need. It's an example to us, loved ones, in our lives to show that compassion to one another, to strangers, to visitors, to church family, to people we don't know. Naomi's heart is softening now. Chapter 2. Verse 20, Ruth has gone home to her. The Lord has shown us kindness. She's recognizing the God of grace. Boaz has been an instrument of this to us. Does the Lord care? That's the question of the book. He does. He cares for Naomi more than she could ever imagine. Do you know and believe personally That God is kind to you? That God loves you? Maybe you've been in a series, a season of bitterness. Sometimes that happens because of events around us, our own hearts, all sorts of things in a fallen world. One thing to pray is God, help me to notice your kindness in my life. And then at the end of chapter 2, Naomi says something we know, the author knows, but Ruth doesn't. That man Boaz, he's a close relative of ours. He's the kind of man Ruth will be safe with. He's from Naomi's family. He's a potential redeemer. Ruth 3, what does that mean? Naomi has a plan. Ruth, the harvest is almost over. You need Boaz to redeem you. You need to be recognized by him, Ruth. He's the kinsman redeemer. Go, Ruth. Go to him. What is this language about? Similar to a few weeks ago with Tamar and Judah. Leveret marriage. 
kinsman redeemer. It'd be a relative of the dead man that would be called upon by the Mosaic law to help with family property that's been lost or to help raise up a child through the widow who's still alive, someone who's related. Naomi says, okay, here's the plan. Go to Boaz at the threshing floor at night. A comparison would be go to a nightclub. After Boaz has eaten, after he's drunk wine, uncover his feet. What in the world is going on here? Something enormously risky and very dangerous. Is Naomi telling Ruth to go and commit sexual immorality with him? It's at least plausible the way the text reads. And at this point, worth saying, has she lost her mind? She's running ahead of the sovereign providence of God, taking things into her own hands, trying to engineer something. It's dangerously similar to Genesis 19. Drunken Lot, his daughter, Moab comes out of that. Except Boaz is not drunk. He's a virtuous man. Except Ruth is not going to follow Naomi's risky plan exactly. She goes to the threshing floor. She approaches Boaz. It's evening. She puts herself at great risk. Threshing floors are outside of town. Ruth could have been abducted. She maybe wouldn't have made it to him. In these days, prostitutes did work at threshing floors. Hosea 9. This is not a model plan for girls or boys in terms of how to pursue a relationship. I'm just going to say that. This is not giving you a plan, just so you know. Boaz is sleeping at the end of the grain pile. That's ironic. Because the whole book of Ruth is about seed. Seed in terms of food. Seed in terms of offspring. It brings us back to Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The seed God promises to Abraham. The author is weaving this in here. Ruth approaches Boaz, chapter 3, verse 8, and she uncovers his feet. There's a shudder in the middle of the night. Your wife turns over. She pulls the covers from you, and your feet are kind of cold. You know the feeling sometimes. And it says in Ruth 3, verse 8, Behold, a woman is lying at his feet. Not a dog licking his face, not a cat at his lap, a woman at his feet. He's startled. This is not saying anything immoral has happened. And he says, who are you? Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night jolting and wondering, well, who's there? What's going on? Ruth says, I'm Ruth. Is her pulse racing, you wonder? And and then she goes off script. She doesn't do what Naomi could have been hinting at. She's coming to him for rescue and redemption. Spread your wings over your servants. The same language in chapter 3, verse 9, as we found in chapter 2, verse 12. When Boaz 
talk to Ruth of God, under whose wings she has taken refuge. Ruth trusts in the Lord. She's committed to the Lord. What's she doing here? She's telling that to Boaz, and she's proposing to him. This would be like us having an engagement ring. Spread your wings, the cloak she's wearing. She's saying, Boaz, you are the redeemer. You're the one who can redeem the inheritance. I want you to fulfill that role for me and Naomi. I want to be your wife. It's about redemption. That's the book in a nutshell. Boaz says, yes, I'll redeem you. Ruth, you're a worthy woman. People are noticing this. They're talking of you in the gates of the city. In the Hebrew Bible, Proverbs 31 comes right before Ruth. There's a connection here with this. Ruth has faith in God that sees beyond bitter setbacks. She has courage, freedom, from the comforts of the world. She looks to the Lord for grace. She's a type of Christ. She's showing such grace to Naomi in this. Everything is moving forward. The train is headed down the tracks and then a thud. Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Boaz is a close relative of Naomi's, but there's another redeemer who's closer. Another man, not Boaz, has the prior claim to marry Ruth, which at this point is a bitter blow to Ruth and Boaz. So what are you going to do? You're there at the threshing floor. It's the middle of the night. What happens? It's not an ideal situation. (laughs) But discretion is the better part of valor. Boaz is wise and he's godly. He shows great integrity. He protects Ruth. He doesn't take advantage of her. And Ruth, by the grace of God, shows purity as well. They're close to temptation. But it's meant to show you how different this is, by the grace of God, from Lot and his daughter, and from what Judah and Tamar and that whole episode was about. There's purity here. In the morning, Boaz sends Ruth away. He gives her a gift. It measures out to six seahs, literally 80 pounds of grain. And you're reading this and you're thinking, couldn't he give her a ring, a necklace, a bracelet, 80 pounds of grain? And Ruth carries that back to the city. Ruth is strong. Have you tried to carry 80 pounds of grain back to your house from another neighborhood? Naomi and Ruth are back at home. Chapter 3, verse 16, Naomi says, Who are you, my daughter? Are you Mrs. Boaz? Who is this Moabitess? Ruth tells her everything. It's seven weeks after they have arrived in Bethlehem. And we're on the edge of our seat. What will happen with Boaz and Ruth? 
chapter 4. Boaz goes to the town gate to the other kinsman redeemer. Business is conducted there. A justice issue or a law issue. This is what happened in the Old Testament. These men were there to gather for the business of the day. And in the providence of God, who comes along at that point? The other kinsman redeemer, the one who is closely related, more than Boaz, who has the right here to marry Ruth. The text never tells you his name. You notice that? As one man says, it's like Mr. So-and-so. He had a name, but he's not given a name in the text. There's ten elders there. They're witnesses to what's happening. Mr. So-and-so, Naomi has a field. She needs to sell it to raise money to live on. It's her and Ruth. Was the land mortgaged ten years before when Elimelech left? Easy for you to say. (laughs) If you will pay off the mortgage, Mr. So-and-so, you get the land. All you have to do is provide for Naomi. There aren't any children to take care of. It's, It's yours. You're first in line. Do you see that Boaz is doing the right thing? And by doing the right thing, it looks like things won't go like he wants it to go. But God's in control. The man says, I will redeem it. I can't miss real estate opportunity. I'm in. And your heart sinks. You think, no! He can't end up with Ruth. That's not how the story can go. But there's more to the story. Naomi also has a daughter-in-law, Mr. So-and-so. On the day you buy the land, you acquire the dead man's widow, Ruth. You need to marry Ruth. Care for her. Have a child with her if the Lord provides. And as Alistair Begg says, when the child grows up, you've got to go to Little League games. You've got to pay for braces, piano lessons, college. Maybe add on a room for your mother-in-law on the side of the house. To our great relief, Mr. So-and-so says, no. You got me in the land, but not the widow. The irony is that as he seeks to protect his real estate investments, he leaves himself nameless. He misses out on having a share in the biggest legacy of all, God's plan of salvation. He has no name. Anonymity implies judgment in a sense here. Verse 8, he removes his sandal. He gives it to Boaz. You're wondering, well, how does he walk the rest of the day? Does he have a, a backup sandal in the back of his pocket? This is how they would do deals, legal deals, contracts. The transaction is binding. The witnesses are there. Ruth can marry Boaz and get the land. And Mr. So-and-so disappears from the pages of the Bible. He's interested in serving the poor if it helps him. And Boaz shows remarkable integrity. He defends the alien, the widow, the poor, the afflicted, all of whom are embodied in Ruth. His life is formed by God's word. He's so opposite of Tamar's wicked husbands, Ur and Onan, who used her, and Judah. Boaz gives himself to Ruth in love and in sacrifice. 
He's a type of Christ. Ruth finds refuge under his wings. And off they go, Boaz and Ruth, to get married. In a public, social ceremony. With the covenant people of God there. Marriage is a covenant. God defines it. No one can redefine it. It's a covenant between one man and one woman. In the sight of God. With witnesses there. That's why when we get married, we do so with guests that are invited. That's a part of what marriage is. And the witnesses pray. May Boaz and Ruth be a blessing. May Ruth be like who? Rachel and Leah. Those mothers of Israel. That in these days of the judges, when things are torn down, God would use Ruth, a Moabite, to build up his church, his people again, as he is faithful to do. We pray that Boaz, his house, would be like the house of who? Do you see that? Paris. And now you're thinking, that's the guy born to Judah and Tamar. What in the world? Embedded in Boaz's story is how God in his grace weaves disaster and sin through his purposes, forgives sin, brings repentance, and produces a man by his grace like Boaz. It's remarkable what the Lord does. Boaz marries her out of a heart of grace, not because of a transaction. He wouldn't own the property, the son that he would have would. They're married, but then there's another big hurdle right before us. Because at this point, it seems that Ruth is barren. For 10 years, when they lived in Moab, her and her husband didn't have a child. Some of you may know the pain of that, of wanting a child and praying for a child and miscarriages and not having a child. And Ruth went through agony. And then we read in the grace of God, chapter 4, verse 13, that God gives her conception. He opens her womb. Whenever there's a birth of a child, it's the Lord giving and opening and providing. And then at this point, the baby's born and Ruth fades from view. She's off stage. You wonder what happens. She's an ordinary mother, caring for the child God gives. And who comes back on stage? Naomi. The women are back. The ones who commented on how Naomi had changed so much after 10 years in Moab, they're talking. And Naomi who left empty spiritually, who came back to Moab without grandchildren, by the grace of God now is full, spiritually full. And the child that's born is not only the child of Ruth, but of Naomi. Boaz redeems both Ruth and Naomi. Her name is no longer bitter. But she's happy to be called Naomi, pleasant. God has brought about a change in her life by the gospel, by his grace, by his spirit. The child comforts her. And Naomi and Ruth join a series 
of barren women who have offspring. Sarah, the mother of Isaac, was before them. So was Tamar, the mother of Perez. They would be followed by Hannah, the mother of Samuel. And one day, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. And all of them are pointing to the ultimate miracle prophesied by Isaiah. Not just a barren woman, but a virgin will give birth through the Holy Spirit. Mary, the mother of Jesus. God works in mysterious ways. This book says God does care. He provides in setbacks. You may be going through hurt, sickness, affliction, pain. You may have regret. I wish I could go back. God is at work. He's moving in mysterious ways in the midst of these strange turns, providing far abundantly beyond what we could imagine in his grace. And we see that in the way the book ends. A genealogy. A family tree. You think that's how this story ends? This love story? This most beautiful of all stories almost? In the dark days of the judges, Ruth and Boaz have a son named Obed, who means servant. The neighbors give them the name. And Obed, it says in chapter 4.15, renews Naomi's life and sustains her. Children, you, by the grace of God, do that for your grandmothers in some ways. You give them such joy, and your grandpas. Grandchildren are a blessing of the Lord. Obed continued the family name to Jesse and to David. This is David's family tree. The genealogy here in Ruth 4 covers over 700 years. From 1700 to 900 BC. It's not an exhaustive list of names. Boaz is the seventh name listed, however. God moves in a mysterious way. No immigration to Moab, no return of Ruth. No Ruth, no marriage to Boaz. No marriage to Boaz, no Obed. No Obed, no Jesse. No Jesse, no David. The Messiah comes from the shoot, Isaiah 11, of the stump of Jesse. The covenant of grace. The Jesus Christ, Savior of sinners, comes out of this genealogy. It's about redemption. Jesus comes from a soiled line because we're all sinners to assume a real human nature, body and soul, while remaining truly God. He's the friend of sinners. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he is the kinsman redeemer. He rescues us from curse and judgment and Satan and death. He loves you, Emmaus Road. This is a beautiful book. If anyone in that day wanted to know, how does God love his people Israel in covenant? Do you know what they would say? As Boaz loves Ruth. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Boaz and Ruth are not perfect. They're sinners saved by grace. But this points us to Christ and his love for you, his bride, the church. 
Ezekiel says, God rescues his people and makes her beautiful, his bride. Ephesians says, Jesus is the husband. The church is the bride. Revelation says, the people of God are the bride adorned for her husband. God himself conforms you to the image of Jesus. He makes you whiter than snow. He changes us by his grace. The book of Ruth leads us, doesn't it, wonderfully, to trust Jesus, to love him, to want to obey him. It makes us compassionate and merciful to others. And it brings us to worship the Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear Christian, this book is a picture of Christ and his love for the church. The Lord's Supper is the ongoing wedding rehearsal. That's what we are about to have in preparation for the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lord Jesus told us on the night in which he was betrayed, 